welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please remain standing and pray with me. Lord Jesus Christ, I come this morning as a preacher of your word under the judgment of your words. Lord, I have no moral authority in myself to speak with my own authority um, these words that you have given us. So Lord, with all of us here, we gather, Lord, hearing a word that convicts us, um, a word that even in its convicting power still remains good news, it's gospel. But Lord, this word makes us so incredibly aware of our need for your grace. We are lost without you, Jesus. We can't live this life without you. So Lord, I pray for the grace to speak boldly the word of God because you have declared it, not because it's my word. And I pray for all of us, preacher and pastor and teachers, Lord, um, and congregants, that you would give us the ability to hear it, receive it. Yes, Lord, to receive it. Don't let it bounce off because of hardness of heart. And then, Lord, supernaturally by your grace to live it out. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, so much for Christian family values. Seriously, Jesus has a tone. Jesus, you have a tone. Why does he talk like this? Well, first of all, if you've been here, you will remember, if you've been over the last few weeks to Christ Church, you'll remember that where we are in Luke chapter 14 is a part of what scholars call the travel narrative. Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem that he knows will end in him being rejected and mocked and tortured and executed on a shameful Roman cross. This is about to get real. And our Lord feels the seriousness of God's mission of redemption, the mission that he himself will carry out. And he wants his disciples to know that to follow him on that mission means each of our lives will necessarily also involve, if we are following this man, this Jesus, will involve suffering at the very point where God's kingdom and the fallen world intersect in our experience. Where God's kingdom and the fallen world intersect, there will be suffering. Now, the second reason that Jesus talks like this is because he loves us so much that he tells us the truth about what it means to genuinely follow him. At the pinnacle of his popularity, when when it would be my temptation to not mess this up and not make people stop coming to church, when great crowds are following him, that's when Jesus intentionally turns and speaks a hard word, this hard word of discipleship. We live in a morally innervated culture that cannot bear the truth of God's word when it challenges us on on an uncomfortably 
personal level. Uh, I can literally expound on the challenging words of Jesus, just expound on those very words without adding a thing, and many people just get triggered. Can't you soften these sayings? Aren't you worried that you might hurt someone's feelings? Well, beloved, Jesus meant for these words to trigger us, to pierce our hard, dissipated, and sleepy hearts. That's why he talks like this. So in keeping with Jesus' own stark, clear words, this is a very simple sermon. Following the text, here is where we're going. If you want to know, in fact, uh, you can tune out right after I say this. <laughs> not really, and you're not going to want to tune out. <laughs> First of all, following Jesus will cost you everything. Full stop. Secondly, following Jesus is worth that cost. And then thirdly, there are contemporary areas in our lives where we will live this out that will be directly relevant to all of us here this morning. So we'll deal with three contemporary arenas where we will be living this out. So let's just jump right in. Being a disciple, genuinely following Jesus, means undivided, undivided devotion to Jesus Christ. R.J. Karras has said, discipleship is not periodic volunteer work on one's own terms, and at one's own convenience. It means loving and desiring Jesus Christ above anything else in our lives. Jesus said, Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So hate your mama, hate your daddy, your wife, your kids, hate your own life. Why is Jesus calling us to be a bunch of haters? Well, like I said, Jesus seems to have horrible family values. What's going on here? Well, of course, Jesus is not calling us to literally hate our families. He's not denying or defying the commandments, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. No, He is using a teaching method that we know as rabbinic hyperbole, to hammer home the point that loyalty to Jesus has to surpass every other loyalty in our lives. And the core loyalty in the first century, in first century Judaism, the most, the most precious loyalty that anyone can think of would be the loyalty to one's family. You think this sounds radical to you now, but in the ancient Near East, family was everything. This was not an individualistic society. And Jesus is saying that, that, that most compelling, that most fundamental of loyalties of our lives, those loyalties have to pale in comparison to our loyalty to Him. So if the decision ever comes, if you have to choose between following your family, pleasing your family, making your family happy, and following Jesus, there's no choice to be made. Uh, I probably, um, you know, have uh, made sure that somebody's, some counselor's children will go to college uh, by telling my children that you just need to know if I ever have to choose between you and Jesus, that choice was made before you were born. Whenever we choose, if the choice is put before us between 
pleasing our family and pleasing Jesus, there is no choice to be made. We'd please Jesus. When he says that we have to hate our own lives, what is he saying? He's, he's saying that we have to choose between living our life for ourselves, with me on the throne and Jesus in attendance, uh, living our life for ourselves or living it for him. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. We choose Jesus. And here Jesus directly confronts the autonomous individualism of our day. This is where, I mean, we don't have the same emphasis on family in our culture that first century Judaism did. We, on the other hand, we do have an extreme devotion to individual autonomy. That's the, the highest prize in our culture. And Jesus says this, if you follow me, you can no longer be sovereign over yourself. If you follow me, you can no longer be sovereign over yourself. Jesus is not a libertarian. Jesus goes on to make this demand even more emphatic. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He says that if we are to follow him, this means that we are aware that this kind of commitment, and this is, this is hard, because by the way, you know, pick up your cross or take up your cross was not a saying, was not a, a, a phrase, it was not a, a, a term of, um, of convenience in the, in the first century. Nobody said, well, you know, you just kind of have to bear your cross. Nobody said that. That was not an idiom in the first century. Jesus creates the idiom. So what he is saying is that this kind of commitment necessarily invites suffering into our lives. The cross was an instrument of suffering and death. So that makes me want to know this. Why is suffering a component of discipleship? That's not a real good selling point. And by the way, this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. He says, count the cost. Why would you start to build a tower not having the resources to finish it? You need to sit down and think about if you really want to follow me all the way to Jerusalem. Why is suffering a component of discipleship? And here's the reason why. Because wherever the kingdom of God and the opposing domain of the world, the flesh, and the devil collide, those anti-God powers lash out against God's reign. So in my own flesh, when God's kingdom challenges Ben Sharp's precious little will, wheel, wheel, I'm sorry. There's not a diphthong there, I'm sorry. I can't help it. But whenever God's kingdom threatens my own desires, there is suffering when I have to choose God's kingdom. It's not, it's not fun. We kind of have to do things on a regular basis that cause us to encounter that, which is why fasting is not something Jesus says, hey, you might want to do this. He expects us. He says, he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. Why would we even do that? Because it begins to, to be the, the kind of exercise we need to practice to learn. If I can learn to say no to a cheeseburger in the middle of the day, as little as that is, maybe in, when the greater demands of the flesh come that are anti-God, 
I will have the practice to say no to those as well. But it is not enjoyable. Or when the world or when the devil collide with God's reign in my life, those anti-God powers will lash out against God's reign, and that's where the suffering comes from. Suffering as a follower of Jesus is like the seal of authenticity on your discipleship. It's like the little hologram of the bird on your visa card. This is a real visa card. Look, there's a hologram of a bird on the back of it. That's so convincing. Suffering is the seal of authenticity on our discipleship, but that suffering ends in a crown of glory. It's never suffering for suffering's sake. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. Hooray! That's terrific! I'm a heir, I'm a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. All that the living Son of God has inherited in His obedience to the Father's will through His cross and resurrection is mine in Christ. Hallelujah! But wait, there's some more. <laughs> Paul goes on to say, provided we suffer with Him. Seal of authenticity. In order that we may also be glorified with Him. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. Yes, there's suffering, but there's glory, which is better than just compensation. It's better than... We don't just get reimbursed (laughs) for suffering. We get glory. Now, all of what I've said, at least the first bits of that, what we've just read could sound pretty bleak and dreary until we remember that throughout the Gospels and in any number of ways, Jesus promises His disciples abundant life. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He promises us joy and peace and yes, in a kingdom sense, however that is revealed, but is genuinely a part of following Christ, plenty Joy and peace and plenty in the kingdom, abundance in the kingdom. The Deuteronomy passage that we heard read this morning helps us to understand that this kind of single-hearted devotion is actually the means to receiving life. It's not the opposite of receiving life. It's not like your life is toned down, attenuated, negated in any way through this kind of single-hearted devotion. It is, in fact, the gateway to real, genuine life. So Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 and 20, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding holding fast to Him, for He is your life. Did you get that? Moses tells the children of Israel that God is their life. There's the source of life. Not It, it means that we are to live in moment-by-moment connected dependence upon God. There's no place, we were never created for independence from God. 
The core of Adam's sin and all of our sin really is to seek to live independently of God, to basically have the life we want and occasionally include God when, you know, there's a holiday or something or a disaster is happening. God becomes in that scenario an accessory to our otherwise self-satisfied and self-directed lives. But beloved, there is not life in that arrangement. Ultimately, instead, Moses says, and our Lord Jesus Christ reaffirms it, that that's the way to death. The result of the radical devotion to Jesus Christ that our Lord calls for in Luke 14 and Deuteronomy chapter 30 is life. St. Paul in 1 Timothy 6 verse 19, he says, in laying hold of, listen, I love this, the life that is truly life. This is the life that is truly life. We think that this kind of living with single-hearted devotion is the gateway to drudgery, but that is the devil's lie. The divided heart is the heart that knows no joy. The divided heart is the heart that knows no joy. This is the reason that there are people that will be sitting in this church today, maybe even right now, find the Christian life to be frustrating and maybe even implausible is because we try to live in two worlds. A foot in the kingdom and a foot in the world. A foot under the reign of God and a foot under the reign of king or queen self. That is the way to frustration. That is the way to despondency. That is the way to eventual apostasy. In our fallenness, we seek to live life independent from God, but that isn't in life. In fact, we won't find the overflowing, abundant life of God if we relegate our discipleship to second place. And this is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment struggle for Ben Sharp. Maybe you're, maybe you're that way too. See, God wants us to find life and joy, but the only path to that is via loving Jesus and following Him with such loyalty that every other loyalty and love looks like hate in comparison. And the best way to explain this is the one-verse parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13, verse uh 44, Matthew 13, 44. I just want to, I want you to listen to this again. Come, Lord, please let us, let us hear what you're saying here. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found, found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, uh, the, the, it looks, if, if you find treasure in a field and you have to go sell your house and your farm equipment and, you know, your vehicle and you have to cash out your 403B or 401K or whatever it is and, uh, yeah, and cash out everything you've got and, every, and you're looking for change in the cushions of the sofa... And you give all that, you give all that to purchase that field. Have you come out a loser? No. You, in in fact, are you thinking, oh, well, I guess I'll cash out my 401k and buy that field with gazillions and gazillions of dollars in it. That's going to be real drudgery. No. It's like you can't wait to do it. It's with, with, he goes with joy and sells all that he has to buy that field. That's, that's the, the 
the boundless treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. It's worth everything. It's worth everything. So here are three contemporary challenges for all of us to consider that are rooted in this passage. This is where the rubber hits the road. Jesus makes it very clear here. He says in verse 33, Luke 14, 33, Therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all, meaning all, <laughs> that he has cannot be my disciple. So it means these things. And these are the hard words, okay? It means loving Jesus more than my sexuality. Now, this includes everyone here because all of us experience sexual brokenness due to the primordial rebellion of humanity against God. It's just how we're going to experience it is the only difference. All of us experience this. Following Jesus means renouncing, expressing my sexuality contrary to his commandment and definition. It's very clear. I mean, Jesus is, is unequivocal. Matthew chapter 19, uh, God created, created us to express our sexuality between one man and one woman in one relationship for life. But on this side of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, to say that we must subject our sexual desires, attractions, orientations, and practices to Jesus Christ sounds positively evil. I read an article about a father in Canada this week, and they called his convictions, I mean, it was like, it was not, they didn't realize they were editorializing. Evil. They were Christian convictions. Positive, it sounds positively evil and at least impossible. But Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So our Lord asks this question of us, do you love me more than your sexuality? I told you at the beginning of this passage, or really uh, in the prayer I prayed it, I mean this, is that these are impossible things apart from the grace of God. The second thing where we find this being very relevant in this moment is that it means, do I love Jesus more than my job? Do I love Jesus more than my job? Do I love Jesus more than my source of income? We have to develop, as John Stone Street has said, a theology of being fired. We all need to begin to develop a theology of being fired. What does that mean? It means, will you stand without compromise with Jesus Christ and his apostles on issues that set us against the world, and particularly in the corporate world and in the marketplace and in our general broader culture right now, those issues seem to center on human sexuality and the sanctity of human life. And if we stand without compromise with Jesus Christ and the apostles on those issues, it means we can lose our professional memberships, our careers, our good name, and our income. See, this is where the culture is pushing back the hardest 
on the Christian faith right now. And I know when I say these things, people say, well, what about? What about? What about all these, these things? Well, listen, here's what I mean. If you work for Apple or Google or Facebook or Starbucks or any number of corporations, large and small, and declare that your Christian convictions make you, my Christian convictions tell me I have to love my neighbor. Nobody cares. There is no pushback. Not only that, my Christian, Christian convictions mean I have to love my enemies. Nobody cares. No pushback. You might even get a, a, an official attaboy at work. Or if you say, you know, my Christian convictions make me passionate about stewarding God's good creation. This is my father's world. I, I am, I am given the dominion, uh, the dominion mandate is a dominion mandate for stewarding, loving, caring for, to the glory of God, God's good creation, that His glory might be revealed in the beauty of the world He's, con- He's created. So if I am passionate about the environment, nobody cares about that Christian conviction. In fact, you'll get an attaboy. Oh, well done, thou good and faithful employee. But if you say your Christian convictions mean that you cannot support same-sex marriage or abortion, you are likely to lose your job, your business, you may get fined, and even go to jail. Jesus says, do you love me more than your job? Now, you might say, well, I've just dodged two of those things that you brought up. Wow, I feel pretty good right this minute. Well, here's the third contemporary application, and it applies to each one of us in this room right now. If following Jesus means renouncing, being willing to let go of everything, then our financial lives, our giving to the work of the kingdom of God will necessarily reflect that kind of commitment. Our financial discipleship is a telltale of what we truly love. What do we prioritize our giving to the what do we prioritize over giving to God's kingdom? What do I think is more important than giving to God's kingdom to the work of the gospel? Where, where what will I spend my funds on in preference to giving to the work of the gospel? Now, what makes us say You know, I can't give a tenth of my income this month because I choose to spend that money on this other thing. And Jesus says to us, do you love me more than that? I'm about to make you mad, (laughs) which helps to know that ahead of time a little bit. (laughs) And as I make you mad, I want you to know that Lisa and I... I'm. I don't know that I have a lot of moral authority, but on each of these points, we've had to make this hard choice. So I'm not telling you to do something that I haven't done in my own life, okay? Jesus says, do you love me more than your family vacation? Have you said, well, no, actually, I don't love you more than that because I'm not going to give this month because we're going to do that vacation. Um, You know, Jesus cares more about refreshing and renewing your family and bringing your family joy than you do. And if we prioritize our family vacation, if it's, you know, if we can't, if I can't, if I have to choose between tithing and vacation, I choose vacation, I promise you it will not end in joy. Jesus cares more about your joy than you do. 
Do you love me more than your necessary home improvement project? Hmm. Oh, now I am going from preaching to meddling. I've had to do this. In other words, okay, I can either tithe and be financially faithful to the gospel, or I can do my home improvement. Do I love you more? I told you this was going to make you mad. You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm about to talk crazy talk. Do I love Jesus more? Do I prioritize the kingdom over my child's college education? See, you're not even allowed to ask that question. We ask that question. In other words, do I trust Jesus so much with my family's life and my children's future that I will give a tenth to the kingdom over hoarding wealth for their education? Do you think God cares more about your child's education than you do? If we cannot give a tenth of our income because, see, that's the training wheels, that's the baby steps, that's the old covenant. And actually in the old covenant, it turns out to be more like 23% if you take everything into account. The old covenant is 10%. The new covenant is, oh, wait a second, what did I read? uh, Therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I'm going to let me have the training wheels. I want the training wheels. Thank you very much. If we cannot give a tenth of our income, this is important, we are likely unprepared to give up our jobs or our liberty or our lives when the moment of decision comes. These are training wheels. I know that saying these things that I've just said, these these challenges that I've introduced, and there are certainly many more than these, I know, though, by saying these things, that that very utterance invites me to be put to test as your pastor. May God give me the grace to be found faithful so that I don't fail that test. But I also want you to know, though, like I've said, um, we faced, Lisa and I have faced many of these challenges, and we found that God was faithful. So what does it cost to follow Jesus Christ? It will cost you everything, and it's worth it. It will cost you everything, and it's worth it. In order to find real life, Jesus says, we have to give up our life. Jesus says, Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It'll cost you everything, and it's worth it. When Cortez landed at Veracruz in 1519 to begin his conquest of Mexico, I always worry about using this illustration. I'm not sure Cortez is the model we're going for. But the point is significant. When he landed in Veracruz in 1519 to begin his conquest of Mexico with a small force of 700 men, he purposely set fire to his fleet of 11 ships. His men on the shore watched their only means of retreat sinking to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. With no means of retreat, there was only one direction to move, forward into the Mexican interior to meet whatever might come their way. 
in paying the price for being Christ's disciple, we too must purposely destroy all our avenues of retreat. Brothers and sisters, this is difficult for me to hear. Do you know what? Um, if I would speak a word, sort of a prophetic word in this moment, would it be this? The church in the, in the West has lost its courage. The church in the West has lost its courage. Our mothers and fathers in the faith who died to maintain Scripture, to hold on to a book, who died for that book, their hearts break to see our cowardice. Courage comes from love. We have a courage deficit because we have a love deficit. We cannot live like Jesus calls us to live in this passage in the power of the flesh, in our own willpower. I don't care how strong your bootstraps are, they're not going to be strong enough to pull you up. We have to have the energizing grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to nerve us for the battle. I can think of no better place to begin to find that grace than at the table where our Lord models for us laying down His life on behalf of God's kingdom, shedding His blood, offering His body, on behalf of the kingdom of God. As we receive this sacrament this morning, may the grace of God revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ flow into us, strengthened by His body and blood, so that when the moment of decision comes, small or great, we will have the courage to say, I love you most. I love you most, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 